We have policy analyst and a former mayoral candidate, Chloe Brown, joining us on Toronto Today. I hope you had a great Christmas, Chloe. Thanks very much for coming on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Brian Passifume, similarly, I hope things uh, are great for your holiday. Uh, and you, of course, write for the National Post. You're the, you're the uh, Parliamentary Bureau reporter, the PBR. Nobody probably refers to you as that for the National Post. PBR, that's a new one. That's a new, yeah, yeah. It saves time on the business card. Um, I saw this story, and I think this relates to everybody in Ontario. And, Chloe, I know you were out there knocking on doors and talking to people about cost of living and how we're doing in Toronto. We saw this story in the Star that basically documents that Bay Street, of all places, they're losing workers. There's new grads that are moving away from Toronto just because of the cost of living. We're worried about it for the middle class, the hollowing out of that middle class. We're certainly worried that we don't have enough safety nets for people below the middle class. This is really something that it's well documented and the numbers are only going in one direction. There's people doing really well in Toronto, Chloe, and they want out or need out. When you read this, what's your reaction? I'm not surprised. We live in an increasingly sterile city. So despite the rent going up, it's harder to participate in life in Toronto. I'm 33 now and it's like I don't go out because to pay cover, the cost of drinks, to pay the cost of transportation to get home, these things just add up. And then when you think about the fact that you're paying so much in rent and oftentimes you're fighting your landlord to get repairs, it's just not worth it anymore. Toronto's becoming less attractive and I don't think it's ready for the same brain drain that Detroit experienced in the 90s. No, and I watched that. I moved to Detroit in 97. I stayed there through 2007, and I saw a lot of people. I either flee to the suburbs or, uh, or, or I saw them just, just be able to just leave the state, period. But some of that wasn't about cost of living. It was just about getting out and, and wanting a better life. Brian, how do you see it? And I'm sure, again, Ottawa, like this almost is an entire southern Ontario bubble that we're all watching this in. And it's almost all related, as Chloe said, to cost of living, going out, raising a family, home prices, rent prices. Yeah, I, I jumped ship from Toronto a couple of years ago. I, I, I left. It was uh, I got off of the job here in Toronto, but even back uh, here in Ottawa. But, but even back then, you know, life in Toronto was getting unbearable. And I can't imagine what it's like now. Yeah, it, Toronto's uh, Toronto's become an unlivable city. It's a city that's uh, you know that it's 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 full of people who would much rather rename streets than to spend the money on law and order and, and making sure that uh, you know people can you know take the subway home safely without getting murdered every night and it's yeah it's it's it's, it's terrible you know toronto is toronto's seen a huge downfall i grew up in toronto it's, it's my city it's but there's but but the the idea of the law and order doesn't really affect home prices like to close it doesn't really affect cost of living no the bay street crowd is leaving because not even they can keep up with the ridiculous cost of living at this point like i used to love to go down into the financial district for an after work drink and now it's just not worth it anymore. You can make those drinks at home. Yeah. the uh, I'll give you some average uh, home sold prices. And this is from the summer of 2022. In the GTA total, $1.2 million. Toronto's a little bit above that at $1.25 million. 
But Ottawa, Brian, where you are, seven hundred nineteen grand. Even London, seven hundred seventy-two grand. Now let me give you our bordering states. The average home in Michigan is two hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. There's some nice neighborhoods in Michigan. Uh, New York, and that's this isn't just Manhattan. This is Albany and Buffalo and Syracuse, four hundred twenty-five thousand. Brian, these are American prices, but again, and it's not just like people can just float over the border and magically get a work visa and and replicate their lives. But it does document how how unbelievably out of control we all are in southern Ontario with what it costs to go by your uh, go about your day by day lives. Well, absolutely. The, you know, the other day my wife was watching TV. She was watching some show like my dream lottery home or something. And and the home the homes they're looking at were like two, three hundred thousand dollars. And I'm thinking, you want a lottery, you want a three hundred thousand dollar home? Like you can't even get that here in Canada. And yeah, like when I'm when I moved from Toronto to Ottawa, like I I, I rent an entire house for less than what I was renting a tiny little one bedroom condo in Toronto. It's 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 a, it's unreal. Chloe, you know your policy. What what would you tell the mayor? What would you tell city council? If they said, let's bring, bring Chloe Brown in, mic, mic her up for a half hour. What are the biggest things you tell Toronto City Council? And, and is it a longer multi-pronged conversation because the province and the federal government need to be involved as well? Well, I would really tell them to just start working on making cooperative uh, financing more attainable. I think that there's a really big opportunity for Toronto to bring back entrepreneurship. And if you read the federal reports, you'll see that we're lacking competition across the country where not enough people are getting back into business. And right now, no one can do anything on their own. Cooperative financing would at least allow me and my friends to come together and buy a building, turn that building into a mixed use property. So you have commercial, residential, industrial, anything. And that's where the city's really dying. It doesn't trust its own people. We have too many international design competitions and we have designers at home. And this is the right time for government to actually work with people versus soliciting help from outdoor donors. That's so that's so well thought out. And Brian, I, I look and I think I think there's a lot of people that are just saying, why Toronto's gonna come back. I gotta give it six months, twelve months, eighteen months. But the numbers are starting to show people aren't going to wait like life doesn't wait for anybody so people are doing maybe what you're doing and saying if there's an opportunity elsewhere and i don't have the cost and i don't have the traffic and i don't have the transit issues i'm out of here well you know, and this goes way beyond a policy issue this is this, this is a lifestyle issue this is, this is kind of a uh, you know sort of every, everything sort of happening at once like you can't legislate home prices down you can't legislate people to you know people's home prices to to suddenly lose value you, you just can't do that but you know what is, at the end of the day what is the solution prices are going to be going up and up and up the only way to get any sort of correction in, the, in, in this market is you're going to get a lot of people losing a lot of money so yeah, it's, it's an unenviable situation for anybody yeah it's rough right now let's move to this and uh, I, I love true crime stories Brian, I can't figure out where this one's going to go, but we're seeing this morning uh, news that Peel police are already talking to Quebec police about this massive gold seizure on Sunday. They found about a million dollars worth of gold, plus a bunch of cash, plus guns, plus drugs, your typical stuff for organized crime. So we had a $20 million gold heist at Pearson Airport uh, in April, and this is almost described as really rare, if not unprecedented, that there's some kind of some kind of raid or a bust and they find this much gold. I want more answers on this one because goodness knows in April, the police didn't seem to know the first thing about it. If they did, they sure didn't say anything eight months ago. 
Yeah, the, the, the audaciousness of this crime was just uh, like our National Post. Uh, Adrian Humphreys has been covering this story, and it, it, it's been absolutely incredible. Sort of the, the audaciousness of even how it was pulled off. Like it was just as simple as someone, you know, driving, you know, to the infield cargo area at Pearson, you know, presenting a forged bill of lading, and and being able to walk out with twenty million twenty million dollars in gold, and it's. It, it, you know, it, it was even more amazing was the fact that, you know, possibly some of this gold was recovered because, the, you know, the first it, gold is, is like any other precious commodity, unlike any other precious commodity, like diamonds or money. It's pretty mm-hmm. much in its form. But gold, you can melt it down in anything. You can melt it down from bars and coins or whatever. It, you can completely obliterate any trace of it. So the fact that they, you know, supposedly maybe somehow found some of this gold, that's, that's sort of another amazing part of the story. Chloe, does this story intrigue you the same way it does me? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this reminds me of the maple syrup heist. Yes. Uh, really, Quebec really knows how to entertain us. Um, <laughs> that being said, I would really think that this is an opportunity to talk to Toronto Police Services and get them out of winners and get them into places that they really need to be. Because how are you walking away with that much gold? Yeah, $23.8 million. Brinks, and by the way, Brinks is seeking damages from Air Canada. They're saying, this is on your watch. This was your cargo plane. This was your hangar. And this was our loot, basically. $21.1 million for 400 kilograms of missing gold and $2.7 million in cash uh, as well. There's $1.9 million in U.S. cash, but they use the exchange rate um, and go for there. Speaking of airports, let me stay with you here, Chloe. Major disruptions in the last couple of days at LAX and JFK airports. And you and I have talked about it. So many people have talked about it. Where is the right to protest begin and end? Are, are lines being crossed or at least being walked up to? So this is getting a lot of attention in the States right now. If Pearson Airport, and we haven't had this yet, if it had a major protest or disruption that was deemed pro-Palestinian, how do you think we'd react to people being late for flights or being unable to pick people up? It's one thing in the shopping center. I suppose you can go somewhere else and shop, but this would be land a little bit differently, would it not? I don't know. I've been to Pearson and it's disappointing with or without protests. Um, (laughs) To be honest, this is where I find it to be very sticky because it's like I come from a community that has been disruptive to get me the rights that I have today. Right now, we're seeing Americans really at the end of their rope with arming Israel. And this is billion dollars of taxes that could be going to ending homelessness, providing food. And honestly, I think this is the age of foreign policy where the Western society needs to realize you're either in for a pound or you're out. And yeah, I can't, I don't really have a strong opinion about it, mm-hmm. but it's just like, I just want this. I want this war to end. I want the genocide to end in my lifetime. And I think the generations are very divided on this because this conflict is 75 years old. It outdates a lot of us, but my generation wants it over in our lifetime. So yeah, it's, disruptive but at least it's nonviolent. I I hear you on that and I've said a ton of times like it's been part of my life my entire existence I'm in my early 50s now uh, just barely but I don't want my kids dealing with it when they're that age and Brian Chloe's point is well made here in that People who are in their 20s and 30s, they vote too. And and they sometimes they vote with their wallets as well in terms of what they do. They look at this a little differently than people in their 50s or 60s do. And we're starting to see the United States, uh, some of the poll numbers, and it's massive pressure on Joe Biden and the Democrats to either end this or do better than they've been in holding Israel to account. That's what the polls are saying anyway. 
you know, and I'm all for sound advocacy. I think that, uh, you know, you know, protest didn't make a point of something that, that is, is cherished in our society. But these, these these thugs that you see, like these 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 pro-Palestine thugs you see, like disrupting Christmas, uh, you know, I, I should show you my inbox every day just because the articles I write aren't heavily biased against Israel. I get tons and tons of email from, from the, these organized thugs accusing me of all sorts of stuff. And, and really, it's, 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 it's nonsensical to think that anybody would, would block a road and think that it would, uh, you know, turn anybody towards their cause. You know, it's, it's, you know there's, there's, there's obviously a travesty going on in, in Israel and Gaza, but at the same time, it's like, you know, like they're, you know, they're, they're adopting the same tactics they use in Israel over here. Like it's weaponizing it's weaponizing inconvenience, weaponizing terror, weapon, weaponizing threats. You know, you go down to these these protests, you see people threatening police, threatening other people, stomping Canadian flags. It's it's it's, it's, it's horrible. I think that the only way to move forward is to get beyond these 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 thug tactics. Do you and, think? Uh, okay, the, the, like let me ask though. Do you think we're seeing? I I, I got you on. Hey, a kid's on Santa's lap. Uh, don't don't blast your megaphone in in front of Santa and the kid. But are, are we understanding that outside of public places, documenting, you know, uh, protests on on highways, marching up and down streets to Chloe's point, it is how noise gets made. It is how change ends up happening. Is there a fine line and some are crossing it and others aren't? Well, like how 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 is badgering regular people, you know, going to pick up someone at the airport or going to go see Santa? Like, how does that impact Israeli public policy? Like, this isn't just advocating for change at home. This is. This is this is this thug tactics to 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 push public policy that that really you know that that is really outside of influence. I think it's it's you know it's well proven that the Israeli government's not listening to anybody but themselves and their own advisors. You know, inconveniencing people here it's it's a it's a it's a political thing. Yeah, that that's an understandable. And and Chloe, Canada's gone to the UN and voted the way they voted. And though it doesn't have any sort of international binding, you know, uh, there's no there's nothing uh, binding about it. And there's no way the UN, we see how, how what a paper tiger it is. They can't force Israel. They've never been able to force um, governments like Israel to do anything. Um, but the, but Canada at the UN voted with, with Bob Ray, our ambassador, voted a certain way that ticked some people off and, and should have kind of quelled some people going, OK, Canada wants a ceasefire. The government said so. Yes, but we've seen the speed that Canada moved with when it came to banning and sanctioning Russian goods. We want the same thing for Israel. We want action. And it's not enough to just say like, hey, we're in the room and we're going to vote for this. What are you actually doing? I think it's very rich that Canadians love to complain about refugees and immigrants, but refuse to see the role of our nation in creating these classes. At the end of the day, it's really about us refusing to cooperate in this savagery that will stop this war. And it starts by disarming Israel and not sending aid to prolong this. And this is what nation building is really about to me as a policy analyst. You can Mm -hmm. sit and raise your hand or you can do something and the government has that power. They're choosing not to use it. And this is why you're seeing this level of disruption. We have kids that I grew up with in the 90s that are refugees from Bosnia, that are refugees from Rwanda. At what point does it stop? We can't complain that refugees are taking up resources and then expel them from their homes. You got it. You got to get off the pot. <laughs> Chloe, do you look at the protests, though? And if you and I were having, well, we are, we're having a conversation now about it to me. 
the logic tells me the only way this thing ends is with Hamas being being destroyed. Like this is what this is what Israel said they would do. They've set out to do. I agree. There's always going to be questions about the tactics. But what I see on the street and in the malls is I don't see a lot of people calling for Hamas to surrender. I see criticism of Israel. I want to see both those things simultaneously, and I'm not spotting it as much. Is that fair? I understand where you're coming from on that, and I don't condone the use of civilians for military tactics. And this is why we're not seeing this huge, like, condemnation of Hamas, because after October 7th, the response was not proportional. Blowing up civilian infrastructure and killing non-combatants is not in line with military procedure. And I can say that as a basic analyst. How much more should the people involved in military operations be more involved in ending the use of non-combatants for political messaging? Let's move it to uh, this OPP, uh, these OPP stats. I, I know we sent these to you just several minutes ago, but we woke up and I was really surprised by the numbers, Brian. Uh, OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt details, we are going to have the most impaired driving deaths in Ontario since 2004. And I mentioned it earlier how our parents probably lived a little bit differently, maybe a little more wild on the roads. Our generation was told you drink and drive, you're going to get caught. There's going to be massive punishment. It's going to follow you. It's going to haunt you. When you see these numbers, what does it tell you about the direction we're going in? I, I, I apologize. I, I haven't seen the numbers you're referring to, but it's, yeah, I think that, um, you know, anybody who thinks of impaired driving is, you know, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as, as, as socially acceptable as it once was. You know, it's, I think at one point, you know, particularly in my life, I'm I'm only 47, but in yeah. my lifetime, it was it wasn't really seen as a huge issue. But it's it still goes on. Like I, I lived out west for, for for a bunch of years, and it's it's almost a uh, it's it's almost a sport out there. It's almost uh, you know it's in a lot of areas, it's not seen as anything bad. And I think that uh, you know a lot of a lot of good work is done in, in sort of stigmatizing impaired driving. But you know, particularly now with with things like uh, you know with, with, with marijuana use becoming much more prevalent. I think that uh, people need to understand that there's different there's different specters of impaired driving, and I think that uh, a lot more work needs needs to be done to stand up. That's what I spot there, Chloe. Something Brian mentioned there in 2019, pre-pandemic. So it's important to note that 285 arrests in Ontario for alcohol impairment compared to 223 for drug impairment. I bet you the drug impairments pass the alcohol impairment. Now that's just me guessing because I think people are drinking less and perhaps using substances more. Is that a fair assessment, an anecdotally? Uh, to be honest, I wouldn't disagree because the accessibility of drugs has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you walk around Toronto, but there's mushroom stores now. So the, the problem becomes more complex. I think one of the bigger issues I have is the punishment around drunk driving. And I think about the Neville Lake family and Marco Muzo. Yes. And it's one of those things that sits with me where it's like we have drunk drivers just rotating out of the courts because the punishment is not up with the actual crime. And we need to do more to basically punish drunk drivers because honestly, those numbers keep going up and they just pay fines and they're back on the road. No one's really doing enough to make sure that this behavior is not only deterred, but it's completely eliminated. I would love to see like actual license suspensions for like five years because it's insane to me that Someone can just hit me on the road. They pay a what five thousand dollar fine, get their license suspended for two years, and that's it. There's yeah. no long term consequence. Uh, a really great 
project going on in the States is if someone kills a family while drunk driving, they have to pay the child support for the surviving victim if the child survives. And I think it's things like that that would make that would deter drunk driving at least. Yeah, I think we all had that visceral reaction when uh, when Marco Muso got out and then, you know, continued tragedy for the for the Neville Lake family. And uh, Brian, I'd make the point I was saying it earlier, how um, we uh, we've waged a serious campaign about distracted driving. But I'm going to make the case. I drive past distracted drivers all the time. They don't have to have a phone up to the air. They're eating. They're drink. We had a text this morning from one guy saying a woman ahead of him was playing a flute in a car on the 401. I'm like, I, you got to get your practice in. But we, we've given huge tickets for distracted driving, and we may not be doing the same messaging anymore on impaired driving. It's just a, the division of driving to the 401 and looking off to my right and seeing someone playing the flute is just it's amusing to me. <laughs> uh, you know, it's you know one one of the biggest complaints I've heard from from some of the cops I've known over the years is, is that once you get behind the wheel, it just seems like the the, the 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 criminal penalty threshold just goes way up. Like for example, if if you were to you know just get a knife and stab somebody, you go to jail for the rest of your life. But if you if you purposely drive into somebody with your car, you're out of jail at 10 years. Like there's such a huge disparity—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a huge disparity when it comes to uh, you know, offenses committed behind the wheel and, and outside, and it just goes right down to drunk driving. It's one of the things my cop buddy always says: if you want to kill somebody, kill them in your car. All right, you'll, you'll, you'll be up before your kids grow up. I got a minute left, and if I don't pay homage to this uh, legend, I will greatly regret it. Denzel Washington turns 69 today. I often get into arguments with my friends, and I say he's had a greater career than Tom Hanks. I even am going to go ahead and say it. He outacted Tom Hanks in the movie Philadelphia. I had tears in my eyes at the end. It might have been the Neil Young song. Agree or disagree, Chloe Brown, Denzel Washington, like he's the greatest actor of our generation. He plays bad guys and good guys. Tom Hanks is always Mr. Clean. Come on. Yes, I will say one of my favorite movies of all time is John Q. It got me really into thinking about medical debt. I cry when I really need a good cry. I put that on. (laughs) And honestly, Denzel in The Equalizer, just amazing. So, yeah, a sixth man in his 60s, that is something to aspire to. Oh, my God. Brian, Tom Hanks couldn't be a hit, man. Tom Hanks couldn't be, uh, you know, uh, setting Ethan Hawke up for murder charges and training day. We got a guy with some versatility here, right? Incidentally, I just started watching Sin Elsewhere the other day, rewatching Sin Elsewhere, and that was his first big TV role. And, and just if you want to see like the, the range of acting in somebody, just watch him on the old episodes of Sin Elsewhere. It's, it's fantastic. All right. Great to get unanim- unanimity on Denzel Washington as we head towards the new year. Chloe Brown, Brian Passfim, thanks so much for the time today.